What wonderful words to start our morning off together, to know that God is always constant, that he's always good, he's sovereign, and that he never forsakes us. We don't need to doubt in his care for us. And one of the ways that God often shows his care and concern is through our church family and our friends. And praise the Lord for that. That that is true. Um, One of my closest friends just had his 40th birthday on Friday. Uh, You all know him. His name is Kevin Clausen. So if you see him later on, you can tell him, hey, you don't look too old. And uh, just pass on that encouragement. But he's been a really good friend, and I praise God for him uh, over and over again. Another close friend that has, uh, we've been growing a friendship over the last few years, he, he doesn't know Christ yet. And a few months ago, he asked me for a Bible. And I was just thrilled to think, wow, I can give him this and we can have, start having really good conversations. And uh, about a month and a half ago, I did some follow-up. And I said, so how's it going? Or, you know, are you confused with the reading? Are you enjoying it? And he said, Doug, you know what, I'm really, I want to read it, but I'm not a reader. I haven't really read much since grade 12. I, uh, it's just, it's not that I don't want to, I'm just not a reader. I said, well, that's okay. I said, well, there's other ways to get to know God through his word. And I said, I have what's called the visual Bible, and it's in the book of Matthew and the book of Acts. I said, would you be willing maybe to get together, and instead of us watching a movie or something, we could watch through part of the Bible? And he said, yeah, sure, that would be fine. And uh, so three times over the last month and a half, we've come to my house, and we've watched seven chapters of Matthew at a time, which takes about an hour. And... uh, I've given him the remote, and I say, okay, you stop it when you have a question, because I'll stop it all the time trying to explain stuff or whatever, right? And, and, uh, and I just lay back, and I, I pray, Lord, like, just please speak here, because it's a little bit uh, intimidating, right? Because you think, wow, he, he's hearing maybe for the first time about Jesus, and one of the first things is casting out demons, and then healing, and then feeding 5,000 people, and you're wondering, what's he thinking? And all I do is trust, Lord, this is your word, and you are good. Lord, work in his heart. And we've had so many good conversations, and I'm, and I'm thankful for what's been happening. We're on the last seven chapters now, which is going into the crucifixion of Christ this last week. And uh, when we ended last week, he says, well, Doug, let's go back a couple chapters, because I really want to get that before we get into that last part. I think, wow, Lord, I can't wait to see what happens here. Uh, Lord, do your will in this relationship. Concurrently with that, I've joined a life group with two other guys who meet at my house every other week, and we're just beginning to get to know each other, and we're having a really good time getting to know uh, more about Christ through each other's lives, getting to discuss what we're learning through the Gospel of Mark, and these are already becoming close friends of mine, and I appreciate the time that we've had together, and I look forward to the days that we have ahead. And part of me thinks, what would it look like if all of a sudden these two worlds meet? I've talked with my life group and they know about my friend and they're praying for my friend. And I said, you know, if the point comes where he accepts Christ, would you be open to him coming and joining us so that we could study Mark together as well? And so they're thinking, we're praying about that. But I really hope that whatever happens, that Christ is honored in the way things take place. All God asks of us is not that we convert people, but that we share our light with people, that we just live the way he's called us to in the midst of everyone. Uh, That's what we heard about the week before, that we are the light of the world. That means that we're not supposed to try to shine brighter, that we're just not supposed to hide the light that we have in God and to invite people into relationship. It also talked about how the kingdom of God is like a little seed. It has small starts, but it can grow big. Well, I think what could happen in a group of small friendships, whether you're a life group or just other friends, and you really start praying about God using you to reach the people around you. Small beginnings could have big impact in the kingdom of God. 
That's what I'd encourage you with as far as your friendships and if you're in a life group. But that's also the background of, of the, before the story that we read today. That's what Christ was talking about. So please turn with me in your Bibles right now to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're reading from verses 35 to 41. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you the setting that this is uh, set in. Uh, first of all, God, Jesus has had a really busy and full day. Uh, in the morning, the Pharisees had accused him of blasphemy, that his works were due to the power of Satan. Uh, his family wants to take him home because they think he's a little bit out of his mind. Then he's going outside and the crowds and the masses are so huge that as he's healing them, he's actually worried about being crushed. And he gets into a boat to teach them. So it's hot outside, he's on the boat, and he's teaching them parables all day. And then we get to these words. So Matthew 4, 35 to 41. Please stand with me as we read the word of God. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So this miraculous story is one of four that incur in very short succession to each other. This one definitely talks about God's sovereignty over creation. As we go into chapter 5, the next couple of weeks, we'll see God is also sovereign over demons, over disease, and over death. The theme across it all is that Christ is victorious. There is nothing that can defeat him. Whenever the enemy arises, Christ is victorious. Mark is a little bit unique from Matthew and Luke. He has a few little extras which point to the reality that this gospel is written from the eyewitness account of Peter. And these extras are, for me, what bring the extra a little bit of joy. Because usually you can see the big story, but these little extras uh, give you little nuggets of wisdom and joy. And uh, we're going to talk about a few of those there, but an important point is that we don't major on minor things. So we can make note of them, but they're not the overall thrust of the text. The first little phrase is, just as he was. The Bible says that, he, that the disciples took him in the boat just as he was. That means that after this day of teaching, he didn't have any chance to go home and freshen up before they crossed the sea. He was exhausted and he was ready for relaxation and rest. He needed to be restored. And that also means that the, the crowds are probably still all around the shore wanting more. And he said, let's go. Can you imagine the people probably just crying out for more and more? And Jesus says, it's time, time to go. The next little extra is other boats were with him. So obviously there were some people who weren't content to be left on the shore side. They said, you know what, let's get in some boats. Let's, let's follow Jesus. Let's make sure that we don't lose sight of him. And uh, it would be very interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it much before, but in this situation when the disciples were on the boat with Jesus and they experienced this miraculous sensation or st uh, stopping of the wind and the waves, that all these other boats had that as well. 
All of a sudden, they're caught in a storm. They can't hear anything that Jesus is talking with the disciples. And all of a sudden, it's just completely calm. And you wonder if after that, they could have overheard what Jesus said to his disciples on that calm lake and how that might have impacted them. The word that got me on that, though, is the other boats were with him. It doesn't say with them. Maybe this is a very minor difference, but it doesn't say, and they went with Jesus and the disciples. The focus is always on Jesus, with him. And uh, when we read, I think it was two weeks ago, we uh, read about Jesus anointing the 12 disciples. And in the study notes from the sermon-based studies, there was a section there that just highlighted the fact that out of the 12 disciples, we know very little about them. That the focus has never been the disciples. It's always the disciples' life pointing us to Christ. It's always about him. And I think that's important for our lives, that God uses us. He allows us to be part of the blessing to the world, but our lives are always supposed to point towards him. And the last little extra is just the simple phrase, sleeping on a cushion. How in the world would that happen in the middle of a storm? Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. These are definitely words that Peter uh, would have just remembered, that that was unique. Um, For a lot of people, when they're reading this story, between the the start of it saying how the storm started and how Jesus was sleeping, they would be thinking of the story of Jonah. And there's a lot of similarities in parts of the story. There was a huge storm. There were sailors who were terrified. Uh, Jonah was sleeping. Jesus was sleeping. There was a dramatic uh, cessation of the storm. And then the fear of the sailors was actually more after than before because now their fear wasn't in the storm. It was in a God who had the power to stop it. But the difference in the characters are quite dramatic because Jonah was running away in disobedience from God. And he offered his life as a sacrifice to save the people, but it was because of his disobedience. Christ, on the other hand, was walking in complete obedience with God, but he would also offer his life for all of us in time for our sins, not because of his own, right? So he he stopped the the storm in the power of God, and we know that that later on, the the whole climax of his life was to say that, you know what, one day I will die. And like Jonah being in the whale for three days and three nights, I will be in the earth that long, but I will rise again. And I will give hope to the whole world that there is a God who exists, who loves us, and who makes eternity with him possible. Two things, though, to gain from this extra about him sleeping on a cushion that I think are primary. And the first one is that it points to the humanity of Christ. Christ was human. He got tired. He was exhausted. I'm sure we can assume that he slept every day. This is the only time recorded in Scripture that Jesus was sleeping. But uh, he needed rest just like all of us. Two weeks ago, Azar made uh, some comments that I want to share here. He said, we can't say that when Jesus became flesh, he stopped being a divine being. When divinity and humanity of Jesus are in perfect balance, we have an accurate view of him. And that's totally true. I think that what's happened is for the world, the world has no problem believing in Jesus as a human, but doesn't believe that he's deity. And as Christians, we believe that he's both God and man, but I think sometimes we really underestimate the limitations that he faced as a human and what a sacrifice that was for him in order for him to relate with us. Jesus experienced every human limitation without any of sinful's human limitations. Sinful's limitations, sorry. That means that 
as a human, he didn't have the ability to be everywhere, ever-present, ever-knowing. He had human limitations, but he didn't have any sinful limitations. We often say, well, when we make a mistake and we sin, well, we're only human. But the reality is when God created humans, we weren't sinful. And when we go into eternity, we won't be sinful. Sin isn't part of humanity outside of the fall. In God's creating us, he wasn't, uh, there was no sin. And Christ lived that perfect life uh, in a human body. He did only what the Father told him to do, and he did it by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. When he did his miracles, he didn't go into some power of his own. He relied on his Father to do what his Father said, and he relied on the Holy Spirit. John 17, verse 5 says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Christ was from eternity before and eternity uh, in the future. And he's, and, but on earth, he gave up some of that, uh, not his deity, but he gave up some of that glory while he lived on earth. As we enter into Christmas, I just want to make a little point that we don't celebrate Christmas as his birthday, which we often say, right? We talk with children, we say, why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, it's Jesus' birthday. No, it's not his birthday. He wasn't born on December 25th. Why we celebrate Christmas is it's his incarnation. We celebrate the incarnation, the fact that God, as Jesus, as fully God, became man, that he would humble himself and come as a baby. We don't celebrate the birthday. We celebrate the incarnation. The second thing that sleeping on a cushion highlights is his complete trust in his father. And we know that by Jesus' rebuke of his disciples, he, he rebuked them because of their lack of faith in God's care for them. But God, Jesus, had no concern about his father's care for him. He knew that he had a destiny. He knew there was a destination that he was going to and that he was in his father's hands. There was nothing that would threaten him or thwart God's plan for his life. And that's the type of relationship that he invites us into as well, to have complete trust in God our father, that what he wants accomplished will be accomplished. And this is what this story highlights, that the struggle that we have, that, that it's hard for us to believe that at times, especially when storms come. So that's the first main point, is Jesus, he's the calmer of storms. So let's give a little bit of context to the setting of this story. The story took, takes place on the Sea of Galilee. We know that the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest of the freshwater lakes in the world. The lake that's close to it is called the Dead Sea. That's the lowest of the saltwater lakes in the world. Sea of Galilee is fairly small. If you saw it, you'd think, oh, it's not that big of a lake. It's 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide, and it's surrounded by mountains. There's a channel that goes out to the north, and this is where all the water comes from, and it connects to a mountain called Mount Hermon, and it's about 9,000 feet in elevation. So if you're breaking that down to a mile, every mile, if it was going like that, it'd be 330 feet elevation every mile. It's a vast difference from one area to the other. And Mount Hermon, it's, it's cold up there. So this cold air rushes down through the river chains onto the Sea of Galilee where it's hot and humid and lots of times there can be really dramatic storms. If you ever have the chance to, to go to Israel and see the Sea of Galilee, it's a picture that will stick in your mind. And you, uh, uh, it's just a beautiful place. And it's easy to see, though, how storms could happen there. Uh, the Bible tells us that the disciples were scared. And, of course, they were scared of the storm, but they had probably been in many storms before. I think what really terrified them is that the water was actually getting inside the boat. 
right? It's okay if you're in a storm and the water's kind of still outside of your perimeters, but once the water gets in, that's a terrifying place to be. And this is what they experienced. And so they went and they woke up Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said, Be quiet, be still. And, you know, we don't know if whether he got up and he said that in a loud voice or whether he got up, looked at his disciples and just said, be quiet, be still. Because the issue isn't the power of his voice, it's the power of his word. Uh, These words are very similar to the beginning of Mark in uh, chapter 1, verse 25, when he takes the demon out of the first person and he says, be quiet, be still, and the demon comes out. Uh, The word actually means be muzzled. You don't have any ability to speak anymore. And just as the demon was silenced by just a word from Jesus, so was the storm. Uh, When we're thinking of the storm, let's visualize the fact that here the disciples are in a boat and the winds are are crazy, right? So they hear the sound of the wind everywhere. All of a sudden that, that stops. But also the waves. The waves were rocking their boat everywhere and all of a sudden it says the waves were calm. And I think that would have been the thing that would have freaked people out even more. If you've ever been on a boat and you see how there's the wakes that continue on after you go through, here, just by a word, these huge waves just stop. And it's like a glass of ice on the, on the water. It's just clear. It's just perfectly peaceful. And they said, wow, this is amazing. Only God could do something like that. And this is something that's believed throughout the Old Testament, Near Eastern faith too. Which it's only God who could do something like, like that. If you have time later on, read Psalms 107, verses 25 to 30, Amos 4, verse 13, Proverbs 30, verse 4. These are all places where the Old Testament points to the fact that God is control of everything and he can cause the winds and the waves to cease. We often think that the storms that happen in life come because of sin. For example, in the story of Jonah. Jonah was disobedient and there was this storm that came up. But in this story, the storm came because of their obedience to God. And all of a sudden, they're caught in a terrible storm. And they had no way of knowing that this experience that was terrifying them was going to be a crucial element to their walk with God, to growing them in their spiritual walk. The storm was essential to their spiritual growth. Now, we might not get caught in these physical storms too often. Maybe you have at times. But we do have storms in our life. And chances are the storm has revolved around some type of loss. Usually that's what storms are about. The fear of losing something or actually losing something. Maybe it's the loss of control. Maybe it's the loss of health. Maybe it's the fear of a loss of a material blessing. Maybe it's the fear of loss of a relationship. Or maybe it's the fear of the loss of life itself. Whatever it is, that fear, when it's not channeled towards God for help, it leads us towards worry. And we become anxious. And we stop having faith in a God who cares for us. Even if we think he might have ability to fix it, we think, he doesn't really care that much about me. And worry is sin. Healthy concern is biblical Worry is sin. We need to understand that as we go through storms and afflictions, hardships, challenges, that these are the things that actually cause us to grow. Um, We don't grow very well when things are peaceful. Hopefully, we do grow in times of peace, but generally, if we look at our lives, if I was to ask you, what are the things that have caused you to rely on God most? 
when have you most understood who God is? You'd probably highlight a storm that you've gone through or the realizations of God's grace after you've been through the storm. We need to understand that Christ wants to develop us through the storms ahead, and he also wants us to remember the ones in the past and to learn from them. Uh, A few weeks ago, at the beginning of September, I was going through my journal. I was just reflecting on the year because so much has happened this last year. There's been so many good, positive things, and there's also been a lot of storms. And uh, and I think what was coming in my mind, if I if I remember correctly, I was probably thinking about Earl because it was coming close to his the anniversary of his death. And uh, I I wrote in my journal, "Who has ever been inspired by an easy life?" That's just what I wrote. Who has ever been inspired by an easy life? And I, I, I prayed even just this last week, Lord, I thank you for comfort. I thank you for the blessings that I experience. And I hope my mind will always be set on you. But Lord, I want my life to point to you. However, however it, whatever needs to happen, use my life to point others to you. And, um, and I think most of us would agree that we're inspired when we see people going through difficulty and their faith stays strong, and they live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to live lives like that. So then, why would Jesus rebuke his disciples for the fear? Uh, Both Matthew and Luke, Jesus isn't quite as harsh in those books, uh, in the rebuke to his disciples. And I think the reality is is that, that it wasn't because of they had fear of the storm, or because they, they wanted help, or for waking Jesus. But he was really saying to them, you don't trust me. You don't trust me. Jesus' question to them had behind it this thought. Your premise is all wrong, guys. Don't you remember all the stories that you've heard as children about God's goodness to his peoples, the trials that he's taken them through? Don't you realize that because of my love for you, I actually let you experience those things? I don't keep you from them? I do allow people I love to go through storms. You had no reason to panic. By asking these questions that way, Jesus is prompting them to see that the critical factor in their faith is not the strength of their faith, but who it's focused on, that their faith is focused on Jesus Christ. Mark's likely intent is to demonstrate that faith is more than an intellectual assent. It has to be put in the trust of a person. It's not good enough to say, yes, we agree with the truths of the Bible, we need to trust the person of Jesus Christ. And this gets us to the next point of Jesus, one who cares. For Mark, discipleship is essentially a relationship with Jesus, not merely following a certain code of contact. If you were to write something down in your notes, you could write this. Fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of a disciple's life. I'll repeat that. Fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of a disciple's life. And that's why the question from the disciples, it was very stinging. It was very rude, the way that they questioned Jesus. And it highlights the real issue that they were facing in the storm, which was not a question about his authority or his ability to help. It was about their assumption of his lack of care, and they're not really understanding who he is or who he was. Verse 40 says, So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? 
The word teacher. This is the first of 12 times in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is referred to as a teacher. And definitely he was that. But this word teacher is not at the same level of Son of God or Messiah or Christ our Lord. This is the reality that, that he was a good teacher. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him, again, cast out demons. They knew that he had power, but they still viewed him as a, as a teacher primarily. Whatever their perception, this is where their, their understanding of him was, was at. But it was the, the next words that would have really hit hard. Don't you care that we're going to die? And Matthew and Luke don't word it in quite the same way. It just says, Lord, we're going to perish. But, but Mark makes it clear. He says, don't you care that we're going to die? The disciples did the right thing in going to Jesus. It was their doubt and his care for him that was the issue. And uh, I'm sure each of us, when we're honest, could say, yeah, I can relate to that. There are times where I really doubt, does God care for me? I believe he loves the world. I believe Jesus died for the sin of all mankind. But in my situation right now, does he care? Uh, I've told you before, maybe not the full details, but there's been different periods of my life. But the, the hardest was a period of over six months where it just felt like God's presence was far from me. I knew the truth of Scripture. I still wanted to live by that, but the, the felt sense of love of God was absent. His presence felt absent. And I kept continually praying, Lord, I know your word says that if a son asks for a bread, you won't give him a stone. Or if a son asks for fish, you won't give him a snake. But it feels like you've done that to me. I feel shafted. I don't know what's happening. Lord, please correct my understanding. And that was a consistent prayer for over six months. Lord, I just don't understand. I, I don't feel that you care. I know you do, but I don't feel it. And sometimes it's after going through a storm that when we see how God can bring peace or healing, that we understand to a deeper level his love for us and that our circumstances don't determine that anymore. But it's hard when you're in that place. Christ said to them, so why are you so afraid? That question is in the present tense. It doesn't say, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid of the storm? It says, why are you so afraid? The Bible tells us that the disciples were terrified after the storm ended. They, they could see now that Christ has the power to stop everything, but they were still terrified in Christ. Maybe this, this guy's powerful. They forgot about maybe the relationship or the friendship that they already had with Jesus, that Jesus has a friendship with them. That question could have maybe been worded different instead of why are you still afraid is why aren't you rejoicing? Think about it, guys. I just stopped everything. I just made you safe. I'm, we're going to go where we're going. Why aren't you rejoicing? But you're terrified because now you're scared of me maybe because you see the power but you don't understand the love and the concern. God knows that when storms come, our anxiety and the question of his care often increase unless he's our anchor in a time of storm. And that's why scripture so often says to us, fear not, don't be anxious or afraid, don't be discouraged. Why? Because I am with you. That's the message that God wants us to hear, that, that he is with us. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. Last week, a friend of mine from our church family, Barb Fields, died. And uh, I know that the news of her death hit a variety of people like a storm, myself included. Uh, this past Thursday, I had the honor of leading her funeral service, knowing that in the group there was a variety of people who experienced the storm in different ways. Some with hope in Christ, 
others doubting, others with no or little consideration of Christ at all. And during the service, I shared these verses that point to the reality that our fear of death and our questions of God's concern can be overcome when we put our trust in Christ and his perfect love for us. Truths that I know that Barb knew and trusted in as a follower of Christ. And I just want to share these with you now. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed with the thought. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. For we do not live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be the Lord of both the living and the dead. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in this earthly body. For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. Man, if we got that truth to the core of our being, how that would change the way we live. Lord, don't you care that we die? Yeah, I care that you die, but don't you care about where you go after you die? Don't you care about who your life is set in? Don't you know that I have you a plan for you in eternity? That things only get better after you die? It's so easy for us to say, yeah, I believe I'm going to, but we, we still have that fear. And God says, the, the sting of death is gone, boys, girls. You can entrust me that the hardest thing in life that you think you're going to face is the door to eternity of perfect love with Jesus Christ. As we get to our uh, close to communion, I just want to leave you with three tips for building trust in God. And the first one is just simply get to know God. Verse 41 says, And they were terrified and asked one another, Who is this then? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Of course, at this point, the disciples had lived with Christ, but they underestimated who he was. They did not yet know enough about Jesus Christ, but their knowledge was growing. If you look at chapter 1, uh, after Jesus does his first uh, works of miracles among the people, the question was this, what is this? A new teaching with authority. What is this? A new teaching. There must be power in this teaching. At least now they had got to the place where they understood it was power in the teacher, that it's not the, just the, the, the content, it's the person of Christ. And this whole incident ends with the question, right? Mark doesn't answer the question right away, who is this person? The rest of the gospel helps answer that question for us. And we, don't, we have a great privilege that the disciples did not. Right, right from the get-go now, we have the word of God, and we can learn more about him through his word. The second point for building trust in God is just trust him every day. I don't know what that looks like for you, but we need to take reasonable risk. 
That's a word I've been using recently. Sometimes God will ask us to do big things in faith, but often when it's our intentional choice, we need to make reasonable risks to show that we're trusting in God. Maybe that's with our finances. Potentially that's with our time, that we use our time differently and we trust God in times of rest or we trust that God, I'm going to take my energy from this endeavor to this one because I think I want to honor you in that. But let's, let's honor him in our days. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I've, I've read it to you before. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. This is my favorite part. Think about him in all your ways and he will guide your paths. If we think about him, that will help us to trust him. When you go into situations and you're not sure what words to say to your coworkers when you're in a conversation, think about him. Think about him in all your ways. And finally, Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Take time to think through your life about the way that God has been good to you, how he's reached out to you. Record those stories and share them with others. That's part of the joy we have in our faith is that we can share the goodness of God with others. But the primary way that we remember what God has done is by spending time with him in his word and by celebrating things like what we will in just a few moments, the communion supper. Remember that Christ has done everything he can to show his love for us by dying on the cross and being risen again. I'm going to ask the people who are the service for communion to come forward. And uh, as I do, I'm just going to read you this one quote from John Calvin. He says, So then, let us recognize when now the supper is offered to us that our Lord Jesus wishes that we might find all our good in him. He draws near to us through his goodness. We celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the start of every month. And the Lord's Supper is the way that we remember Christ's death on the cross and his being raised again. The fact that he gave his body and his blood for our redemption. And uh, anybody who holds Christ as our Lord and Savior is welcome to join in, uh, with us as we have the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that we should also examine ourselves. It says if there's any unforgiven sin in your heart towards someone else, that you should get that settled before you have communion. So with those two things in mind, uh, we invite you to join us for the Lord's Supper. So uh, please stand with me, actually, as we pray for the bread. Father, we thank you that uh, you are fully God. And Jesus, we also thank you that you are fully man. And we thank you for the sacrifice you made for us by coming to earth and becoming a baby, living out your life and giving up your body to much torture and pain before dying on the cross. We thank you that you did all that for our sake. We thank you that you can relate to us in every way. And Lord, as we partake in this bread, we just remember your body and we praise you for your sacrifice. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated.
the 14th chapter of Mark we read while they were eating Jesus took the bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take it this is my body let's do that together Father, we also thank you for the cup that represents the new covenant that uh, we are able to enter into because of you. And we thank you that we can have peace and freedom in knowing that we are in a relationship with you that lasts into eternity and that is active and growing now. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Let's drink it together. As is our custom on Communion Sundays, we have a benevolent offering, and these are funds that are used to help people when they have storms of life and they need financial help. And at uh, this time, we'll have an offering for our benevolent.
Oh. 